the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're plugged into the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Now we get on the air. Uh, we got an engineer. He's a good one. He simply goes by Gabe. That's all you need. And, and Andrew Herdliska does the producing and does that well. Bruce Gordon is with us in this first segment. He's a Titus Street professor of ecclesiastical history at Yale University. His book is out, Zwingli, Zwingli, God's Armed Prophet. Bruce, first of all, welcome to Orlando, and I'm, I'm very glad that we uh, could hook up here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks very much, Pat. It's a great pleasure to be here. What's the background of this book? How did it come about? Yeah, well, I, you know, it's, I, 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 years ago when I was just a, a, a student, I was, like many students, quite distracted, and I just happened to pull a book off the shelf and started looking at it, and it was about this guy who's at the start of the Protestant Reformation, and clearly was uh, really important in the shaping of Protestantism in its first years. And then I discovered, uh, to my surprise, that he died in battle, and I thought, that's really strange, you don't expect... Uh, Protestant reformers to do that. So I became kind of fascinated uh, with this life, and then I went on to do many other things over the years, and then finally I thought, I really want to 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 go back to him, because uh, I've never quite figured out what how this happened. This guy who preached about the Bible and preached about freedom of a Christian and preached about the reform of the Church, and yet he dies in, in battle at, at the end. So I decided I was going to try and figure out that story so that I took it up about uh, five years ago. Bruce, you start with a chapter simply called Mountain Valley. Yeah. Uh, what are you writing there? This is about a, a, a young boy, very talented young boy, who uh, is born in the Swiss Alps. So he's, he comes from a peasant family, uh, but they've got, they've got some um, uh, means, and they're, they're able to educate him. And his father uh, was uh, a kind of prominent little fig, uh, figure in the village. And so they see that they've got this remarkable uh, kid who um, they send off to be, to be educated. But the reason I call it Mountain Valley is that he comes from the mountain areas. He's, he grew up in this uh, valley that looks beautiful place that looks over the Swiss Alps. And, and that idea of the mountains and creation and nature is really important for him for the rest of his life. He, he thinks about God in terms of the kind of majesty of creation. Now, you then move to another interesting topic, and it's simply called Humanist Priest. 
What's yeah. what's that? What's that yeah. about? What's he becomes, that? He goes goes off to university and he's he's very successful, um, but then he becomes he he becomes a Catholic priest at a, uh, and he goes off to another sort of mountainous remote area to be the Catholic priest. But he's still pretty scholarly, and he's learning Greek and he's learning Hebrew, and he so he can read the Bible in the original languages, and he's inspired to read the ancient classics, Greek and Roman writings, and that's what means by calling him a humanist. He, he believed in the study of what we would call the humanities, and the belief that the wisdom of Greece and Rome uh, was not something completely different from Christianity, but actually that the two belonged together. So he saw the study of these classics as helping him to, to uh, study the Bible and, and, and get to the to study the Bible in the original languages so that you could get as close as possible to their meaning. Let's move now to uh, topic three. Uh, you call it disruptive, 1519 to 1522. Uh, what's, yeah. go- what's going on? Yeah. So he's a priest, uh, and, but he's, he becomes quite famous uh, for his preaching, that he's, a, uh, that he's a great preacher. So he gets invited to the Swiss city of Zurich, which is where he spends the rest of his life. He goes there in uh, 1519, January 1519. He takes this post. He's still a priest. He's still a Catholic priest. Uh, and he's, But he's, he's had a conversion experience a couple of years earlier. And that conversion experience leads him, a bit like Martin Luther, to a belief that the Bible alone is authoritative, that, that, that the heart of Christianity is the Bible, it's God's revelation, and not the kind of outward forms of the Church or the rituals or the authority of the Pope. So he has this conversion, in a way, to the Bible, but he's still a priest, and he goes to uh, Zurich and in, in Switzerland, and he starts on the 1st of January preaching, and he decides that, um, unlike the tradition in the Catholic Church, where you preach from different passages during the, during the year, which is still the practice in, in many churches, uh, he said, I'm going to begin at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to preach the whole way through it. I'm going to go from start to end, because every word of the Gospel is God's Word, and therefore we need to preach all of it, genealogies and everything. And so he does this, but he also has by this point become what we might call a social critic. He's a critic of the way the Swiss have lived for many years, where they were making money by selling their sons as mercenaries in other people's armies. Switzerland, in this time of Zwingli, was not like today. It was a very poor country, a poor mountainous country, and many men went off to serve as mercenaries in foreign wars in return for, for money. And, and, and uh, people made a great deal of money uh, sending these uh, these men out, and and Zwingli was saw this as corrupt and against God's will, and he he advocated for the care of the poor. He advocated for a whole range of ideas that that upset a lot of people. He was very much kind of overturning the tables in the in the temple. He was criticizing people politically, but he was always doing it on what he saw as the word of God. So his preaching stirred up a lot of controversy. My guest is Bruce Gordon. He is a professor at Yale University. We're talking about Zwingli 
uh, God's armed prophet. And uh, let's get to divergent visions, 1523 to 1524. In that little period, Bruce, uh, what's going on? And then you go from there uh, to a topic simply called Reformation. I I, want to hear this. Yeah, so this is the period where he he, he gives up uh, being a priest. He says he can no longer be a priest. He no longer believes in the Mass. Uh, he no longer believes in the rituals of the Catholic Church. And this is when Protestantism uh, is born uh, for him. 1523, he uh, has he stages a debate in the city that says... Um, this is this is my theological vision, and I will only uh, retract it. I will only admit that I'm wrong if you can prove on the basis of the Bible. The Bible alone is the sole authority. Well, that was a direct attack on the Catholic Church. So this is the the time when he says uh, we need a reformed church, a church that is reformed according to the Bible. So these years, Pater, uh, is the time in which. A new church emerges that breaks with Rome, breaks with the idea of the priesthood and the hierarchies of authority, and creates a new church, which for which Zwingli is the person who's who's organizing it. This is the beginnings of the Reformed tradition. It's the beginnings of many forms of Protestantism that we know today. The centrality of preaching, two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, not the Catholic uh, seven, not a hierarchy of bishops but the Church as its own local authority. And so, uh, this is, so these years are the years in which a new type of Church emerges, and, and Zwingli is the architect of this. So he's, he, uh, alongside Martin Luther, is there right at the beginning of a creation of what we now call uh, Protestantism in its, its many forms. So these are, the years, uh, these are the years where that's taking place. Uh Bruce, I want you to uh, explain to us, uh, we wish to learn out his own mouth who God is, uh, in quotes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. True and false religion, this is topic yeah. six. What's, what's all that about? Yeah. So he writes in 1525, that's the year in which the Catholic Church is abolished in, in Zurich. This is really radical stuff. They've abolished the mass. They've abolished. They they take uh, all the images out of the church, statues and paintings, and and all the sort of uh, uh, the 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 robes worn by priests. They strip the churches and and whitewash them, so the churches are completely stripped. So this is incredibly radical things are happening. Uh, the mass is being replaced with uh, uh, what's now a new. Reformed sacrament of the of the of the um, bread and and wine. So it, it's all changing. And in 1525, when all this radical change is happening, he writes this work called "On True and False Religion," and it's it's his most important theological work. And basically, he lays out what is the difference between true and false religion. And he goes through it. He starts with God and goes through every aspect of it. Um, justification by faith, uh, the sacraments, the nature of the Church, the nature of the Christian life. And he wants, his goal is to show on the basis of the Bible what that should look like and why that's different from the false religion, for which he he means uh, mostly 
the Catholic tradition in which he had been uh, a priest. Um, so he, he says there's, there's a difference between what is true and what is false, and what we're doing is true. So it's his, his, it's his most important theological expression of what, what he's trying to do. My guest is Bruce Gordon. The book Zwingli, Zwingli, God's Armed Prophet. Broken Body, Zwingli and Luther. Uh, Topic 7. What are you you uh, writing here, Bruce? Yeah. So what's happening here is that Zwingli and Martin Luther are contemporaries. They're almost the same age. Martin Luther, beginning in 1517 with his 95 Theses really launches the Reformation. He's the big figure. Uh, he inspires Zwingli in many ways, but they, they quickly develop into a difficult relationship. And that difficult relationship, they're two very different people. They're very, very different people. Um, and, and Luther certainly saw Zwingli as, as a rival, and Luther wasn't very good on, on rivals. Uh, Zwingli always thought that he could reconcile with Luther, but the problem is they had two very different views of the sacrament, the Lord's Supper. And for Luther, it's a complex thing, but I think you can say, basically, Luther wanted to believe that Christ is still present in the bread and wine. So not quite like the Mass of the Catholics, but still he wanted to talk about Christ being present in the bread and wine. And Zwingli rejected this idea. He said, no, after the resurrection, Christ in his body has gone into heaven. He's not on earth. And, and so that if you're going to talk about uh, the presence of Christ in the bread and wine, it can only be spiritual. It can't be in any way physical. Now that sounds like a kind of abstract uh, uh, debate, but it revealed they had two fundamentally different ideas of how God is present in the world. And this gets caught up in politics, it gets caught up in personal conflict, but the, the upshot of it is that Luther and Zwingli become very hostile uh, towards one another, and that splits the Reformation at an early stage. You get the formation of the sort of Lutheran tradition, and then from Zwingli, the Reformed tradition, and relations between the two are very hostile. It's a disaster for the Reformation, because it means that the two major figures uh, fight and the movement splits. And, you know, that, that split in some ways has remained right through to, to uh, our own day. There are still, you know, theological differences between Protestant churches. Well, this is, this is the start of that early on. Bruce Gordon is our guest. He is the Titus Street Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Yale University. And his book is called Swingly, God's Armed Prophet. we got to take a break, but when we come back, uh, there are a few more topics that we're going to ask Bruce to get into. Uh, expansion and conflict. Alliances and confrontations. Uh, there's a chapter simply called End. A chapter called Legacies. Can't wait to get into all that. Uh, but stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM90 and FM 101.5, The Word. And uh, every weekend we gather like this and uh, always get to talk to some fascinating people. And we're thrilled when you join us. More with Bruce Gordon. Right after these messages, we'll be right back. 
more of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. And my guest is Bruce Gordon. And we're talking about his book, Swingly, God's Arm Prophet. As I mentioned, Bruce, I want you to talk about expansion and conflict and alliances and confrontations. Uh, those, yeah. those are yeah. your next two chapters. What's, what's going on? Um, basically, uh, after the Reformation is established in the city where Zwingli was, in, in Zurich, it starts to spread. It starts to spread um, across uh, what's now modern-day Switzerland. It starts to spread into Germany. It's spreading into France. So it's, it's, being, it's moving out, and, and Zwingli's reputation uh, is, is both as this reforming voice but of course, for his opponents, he's absolutely hated, and they basically want to, to many of them want to kill him. And so it, what Zwingli does, and this is one of the controversial things that he does, is that right from the beginning of the Reformation, he connects reform of Christianity, reform of the Church, with political authority, because he thinks that only with the authority of the political rulers can religious change actually happen. Otherwise, it's doomed to failure. And he sees himself, this is where the title of the book comes, he sees himself as a prophet, very much like in the Old Testament model, where you get the prophets of Israel, such as Nathan, and you know, alongside the king, King David. So this relationship between the political and the spiritual uh, together but different. So he, he's kind of creator of what we would might call uh, church and state, the state church. The two are together. So that means the spread of the Reformation is always connected with political circumstances, and that can mean military circumstances, and it can mean economic circumstances. So religion is never separated from any of those and those things. So after the Reformation is really established in 1525, it starts to spread. But the Reformation, as I say, is never just a purely religious thing. It, it, it has to do with political relations. It has to do... And so there's, there's, it gets tied up in the world of politics. It gets, it gets tied up in military conflicts. And Zwingli's working very hard to try and build these, these, uh, con- these, these connections to spread the Reformation. And so he's very involved in, in, in politics. He's, he's constantly moving between preaching and political activity. So this is, this is um, so just really making the point that uh, these, these are not just two separate sides of his life. He's, he's both. He's a very political figure, but he also sees himself as a prophet in the, in the model of the, uh, of the uh, Old Testament. And, and so, so this is, this, these chapters are really talking about how the Reformation spreads, but how embedded it is in political issues. Bruce Gordon is with us. Uh, he's the author. He's at Yale University. Now, Bruce, as you get towards the end of your book, there's a chapter simply called End, and then a fascinating yeah. 11th chapter. A quote, it's certain that Zwingli died in great sin and blasphemy, remembered yeah, and forgotten. Yeah. Uh, fill us in. Yeah, yeah so, so the end, uh, you know, he's, this all happens pretty quickly. He arrives in, in Zurich in 1519, and he dies in 1531. So we're really only talking about 12 years. Luther lived much longer time. John Calvin later in Geneva lived a much longer time. Zwingli's time was pretty short. 
But as I say, he was the the movement that he started was also heavily uh, political, and his view was that those areas, the Catholic areas that were that rejected the idea of preaching of the gospel, uh, preaching of the Bible as central, those that rejected the Reformation ultimately would need to be forced to accept it. And, and he, his belief was that if the gospel was just brought to the people, they would convert. He has this very strong conviction. It's these political uh, rulers, it's the Catholic Church that's preventing them from hearing the gospel. And if they're going to resist, then force is justified in overcoming their resistance so that the gospel can be brought to the people. It's very controversial. It's controversial in his own day, and that's where I talk about legacies. It's controversial. He's still a very controversial figure for what he, what he advocated, a kind of warlike Christianity to spread uh, the gospel. The end, that's the story, is he gets involved. The, the Catholic forces try to attack um, the Protestants in, in Switzerland. An army goes out from the city of Zurich. Zwingli himself goes out uh, into battle. He's in armor. He's got a sword. Uh, he believes that, that this is a just cause, just like crusades you, you might compare it with. And he believes this is a just cause for the gospel, that, that force can be... Uh, defended on the basis of serving the um, God's will, and so he goes into battle. It's it's a disaster uh, in the middle of the night. There there's an ambush. Uh, Zwingli is killed by the Catholic forces. We don't know exactly whether he was fighting or what he was doing, but he's killed. His body is dismembered, torn apart. It's subjected mm. to a, a ritual, although he's dead. A ritual. Uh, heresy trial, and then his body is burnt, and they burn him because that's what you do with heretics. So he, so this, and the whole movement is in threat is because he's been so central to this whole movement. When he suddenly dies and he's off the stage, it looks like the 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 whole Reformation here could collapse. And there's a lot of people who are extremely angry at him for leading the people into this war. They said this war was not justified. And so there's there's chaos after after he dies. The the quote that you uh, mentioned is a quote from Luther, who believed that Zwingli uh, showed himself to be a false prophet by going into battle and dying in battle. And he says this was God's judgment on on Zwingli, um, and he's very hostile. Uh, many of uh, that that chapter is really about the different ways in which people remembered him and tried to make sense of this really unusual death. No, there are no other reformer of Protestantism is like this. Calvin and Luther die in their beds surrounded by friends. But Zwingli dies on a battlefield. And what, how do you, what do you make of this story as a leading church uh, figure who's been so hugely influential, but yet dies in battle? Is this God's judgment? Had he, was he a false prophet? And so that chapter is about people trying to work out what happened. They were just totally confused as to what had happened with this disastrous end of, of the Reformation. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, you know, I follow the book right through to, to today, and it ends with a movie that was made about him in 2019. Uh, basically, people trying to make sense of this 
remarkable story um, and of his his legacy. And so it's it's kind of the afterlife of him uh, right through to our own time. Bruce, at the very end of your book, you've got a segment called Legacies. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's 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 trying to figure out, you know, um, I think a number of things. You know, 500 years uh, later, what do we, how do we remember somebody like this? How does he relate to our forms of, of Christianity and religion, our thoughts about the relationship between politics, and and religion, um, how you know relationship between uh, religion and war, um, all very you know contemporary questions in in our lives. But yet, I what I've tried to do in this book is to say, looking at this person five hundred years ago uh, is a very useful way of thinking about these sorts of questions. So the legacies is really about, as I was saying before, how. People over time have tried to make sense of him. There's a statue to him in in Zurich, which which was put up in the 19th century, which has him holding a sword in one hand and the Bible in the other. And it's quite controversial because, you know, what is that suggesting? Is it that he's an advocate of violence of the gospel? Other people say it's the image of Paul from uh, from his letters of the sword of, of righteousness and and the word of God. So it's People can't make up their minds what to make, what to to understand, and, and what his legacy is. So that's what I, uh, the way I end the book is to say, well, how how do we think about this person who, in some ways, is so far away from our time, yet the, one of the most important people in in shaping the religious worlds in which Protestantism uh, emerges, and and um, what do we, what do we do with this now? Our guest has been Bruce Gordon, Titus Street Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Yale University and the author of Zwingli, God's Arm Prophet. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Bruce Gordon, our guest in that first segment, he was in New Haven, Connecticut, talking about Swingley, God's armed prophet. Well, we go to Southern California. Ron DeCiani is there. He's the illustrator of the Passion Translation New Testament, masterpiece edition with Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Songs. Ron, first of all, welcome to Orlando. I'm, I'm glad that we can hook up again. Hope you're doing well. Doing well, and so gracious of you to have me on. Thank you. Ron, I don't know quite how to describe this, but last week I got in the mail this this beautiful little Bible. It's leather-covered. Uh, it's called the Passion Translation. And and you're in the middle of this with all sorts of artwork. How, how do yeah. you how do you explain this new Bible? I'm I'm pretty awed by what I've got here in my hands. Well, well, thank you. That's very kind. Um, what God did was give me the desire of my heart, just like Scripture tells us He will. And for probably the last thirty years, I've had most major publishers contact me and say, "We ought to do a Bible together." And 
I don't know why it didn't happen sooner, but Broad Street finally uh, came to me and said, we'd like to do this. And I, it, it was, again, the desire of my heart. And uh, I have been painting for about 50 years. And every time I painted anything that had to do with scripture, I always did it bigger and better than I was being paid to, knowing that one day God was going to use this in his word. How did you become an artist? Well, you know, uh, the Bible tells us that every man ought to, ought to use his gift for the glory of God. And I was fortunate that at a very, very young age, uh, art was so interesting to me. And I'll tell you what I did, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed to tell you this, so don't hold it against me. Um, when I was young, maybe six, seven years old, my family had a big, thick Bible. We didn't read it. It was just sitting on the table. And one day I went through it, and I found these amazing paintings by the old masters. And I shouldn't have done this, but I cut them out of the Bible, <laughs> folded them up, and put it in my pocket. So everywhere I went, I had them with me. And that's how much art impacted me. And I made a vow that someday I was going to do this for the kingdom. Uh, my guest is Ron DeCiani, and uh, Ron, I want you to explain to us the Passion Translation. What does that mean? Well, I, you know, I think it's it's pretty straightforward that we, uh, especially Broad Street and and the folks there, uh, wanted to make you know a translation. It's translation, not not a uh, you know other kind of Bible, but a translation that would really bring the fire into our souls and and really uh, give us the passion about reading God's word. And uh, I couldn't be happier. It's just awesome. Well, here's a quick example, Ron, uh, and this and this. Part of scripture just is my oh this is my favorite uh, the book book of John the 14th chapter uh, starting in verse one let me just read this from from this new this new Bible I just got in the mail John 14 one don't worry or surrender to your fear for you've believed in God now trust and believe in me also my father's house has many dwelling places. If it were otherwise, I would tell you plainly, because I go to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I will come back and take you to myself so that you will be where I am. And you already know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Master, we don't know where you're going. So how could we know the way there? Jesus explained, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes next to the Father except through union with me. To know me is to know my Father, too. And from now on, you will realize that you have seen him and experienced him. Uh, those are the first seven verses. Boy, they, it, it reads well, doesn't it? How awesome is that? It, it, How awesome is that? Now, now tell me, uh, who is the lady? Uh, that that writes, I guess, little essays in here. Yes, yes. Uh, her name is Cheryl Ricker, 
And she and I partnered up on this in order to do some, uh, along with my paintings, to do some poetry and devotions. And she did a great job. I, I want you to explain to me, Ron, um, when the Bible really became real to you. When did you become yeah. really excited about the Word of God? Well, uh, the truth is, is that my my history is, uh, and I don't want to take too much time with that, but uh, when my mom was pregnant with me, she was walking down Grand Avenue in Chicago, mm. going to place to abort me. Oh. Yeah, and she, she got into the office, and they said, just sit down, the procedure's going to start with an uh, injection, and she said the needle came within an inch of her arm, and God audibly, not just uh, you know, in her mind, but audibly said, don't do this, I have a plan for this baby. And she pushed the needle away, walked out, and never went back. And she would tell me that constantly as I was growing up, God has a plan for you, God has a plan for you. And it just so encouraged my life. And there were times I would go to these big rallies that we used to have way back in the day, and I'd be sitting there amongst 1,500, 2,000 people, and the, the, the person preaching would stop, point to me, and say, you come up here. And, you know, try to explain that on the van ride home, you know what I mean? And um, he would say, do you know God's picked you? And I just said, absolutely, I do, my mom told me. So um, it was reinforced constantly through my years, and the only recourse for me was to dig into the Bible begin to study it, begin to love it, begin to make it part of my, my days. And so I started very young and uh, never regretted a day of it. <clears throat> my guest is illustrator Ron DeCiani. And the book, it's, it's the Passion Translation New Testament uh, with the Psalms, the Proverbs, and the Song of Songs. It's, it's not a... Um, alliteration. It's, it's really a translation with wonderful, wonderful uh, study notes uh, at the bottom of each page. Who did the study notes? How did that happen? Um, uh, Cheryl and I um, kind of teamed up. She was the main writer, but yeah, we sort of teamed up, and I put my two cents in, as the Lord would tell me to do, and yeah, it was great. Well, let's, uh, let's take another segment here. Uh, let's let's go to First Corinthians chapter thirteen. We know the love chapter. Uh, and yes. Let's let's see how it sounds. If I were to speak with eloquence in earth's many languages, and in the heavenly tongues of angels, yet I didn't express myself with love, my words would be reduced to the hollow sound of nothing more than a clanging cymbal. And if I were to have the gift of prophecy with a profound understanding of God's hidden secrets, and if I possessed unending supernatural knowledge, and if I had the greatest gift of faith that could move mountains but have never learned to love, then I am nothing. And if I were to be so generous as to give away everything I own to feed the poor and to offer my body to be burned as a martyr— Without the pure motive of love, I would gain nothing of value. Mm. Love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle and consistently kind to all. It refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to someone else. 
Love does not brag about one's achievements nor inflate its own importance. Love does not traffic in shame and disrespect nor selfishly seek its own honor. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in what is wrong. Love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives up. Well, folks, we need to take a break, and then we're back for more with Ron DeCiani. He's in Southern California, the illustrator of the Passion Translation of the New Testament. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM90 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Now, here's Pat. Ron DeCiani is my guest, the illustrator of the Passion Translation of the New Testament. Ron, in the last couple of years, uh, I have received or purchased study Bibles by Charles Swindoll, Mm -hmm. David Jeremiah, Mm -hmm. Dr. Tony Evans, Al Mohler, uh, the the Life Application Study Bible. It's just amazing to me, uh, this outpouring of study Bibles. Yeah. What's, What's going on out there? What are your thoughts? Well, I I think people are, we're living in two different worlds, if I could say that. One is we go to the movies and the television shows and the videos, which bring all of the messages they want to send to us in high definition. It incorporates all of our senses. We not only see it and hear it, but it's a sensory experience. Well, the church has shied away from that. We've said, read the Bible, which, of course, has all the power in the world, God's Word, but should we not use our senses when it comes to God? Way back in 1911, I believe it was, Oswald Chambers said, we've lost the power to visualize. We've lost the power to visualize and to use our minds in the study of God's Word. Well, I believe, I believe that... And if you study uh, some of the paintings that are in the the, uh, Passion Translation, I always try to use uh, a modern-day person in the scene, if it's appropriate, to show that people are still people. We still have the same needs. For instance, the lady that reached out her hand to touch the hem of Jesus' garment to be healed. Don't we need that today? And wouldn't it be good if we could get in our minds what that situation would have looked like with a modern-day person there. And i got to tell you, as a man, I've been in that situation so many times where I said, God, I'm reaching for the hem of your garment. So shouldn't we use everything in our arsenal for the purpose of glorifying God, uh, giving all of our senses to God rather than some of the junk we watch, and pardon me, I don't mean to make it negative, but I, I, there's just a lot of junk out there. And if we could take those senses and use them for God and and have our minds understand what God really has for us, uh, wouldn't that be incredible? And most people who, over the years, 
would see my work, they would say, uh, one sweet lady in Alabama when I was traveling said, you know what I think God's doing with you? And I said, no. And sometimes you got to kind of, you know, take it tongue in cheek. But she said, I think God's doing a new translation of the Bible with you. Mm. I almost fell off my chair. I almost fell off my chair, literally, because that's my hope, is that I could translate some of the Word of God into pictures only for a double impact. You read it, and you see it. And we've known for years that what you read and see is much more powerful than only what you read. Well, Ron, uh, you have inspired me to uh, turn to the Book of Romans. Mm. And I'm going to start with uh, one of my favorite verses, uh, Romans 8.28. Let's see how this sounds in in this uh, translation. One of my favorite verses. The Passion Translation. Are you ready? Yeah. So we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together for good. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his designed purpose. For he knew all about us before we were born, and he destined us from the beginning to share the likeness of his son. This means the son is the oldest among a vast family of brothers and sisters who will become just like him. Having determined our destiny ahead of time, he called us to himself and transferred his perfect righteousness to everyone he called. And those who possess his perfect righteousness, he co-glorified with his son. Mm. Um, you know, I've, I've often asked Bible scholars uh, how to get into the Bible, how to get into the Word, how do you go about it? And, and Ron, they simply say, just sit down and start reading. Yeah. Just start, yeah. Just start reading, and don't put a time limit on yourself. Uh, get into a comfortable setting, um, have a good lighting, and and just start reading. Yeah. And the more you read, the more you're going to want to read. Uh, don't rush. Uh, just take your time and and uh, put that spiritual food into your system. Amen. What do you think? Well, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So if we're going somewhere else to get our information, we're going to be in trouble. But if we could go to the Word of God and now be impact visually as well as uh, reading, uh, what, where do you go from there? I mean, it's only up. And uh, I, this was the desire of my heart, as I said before, and it's taken a long time to get there, but um, here we are. And if there's any book that I would say... Uh, in this world, that you're saying, well, i got to read that one. This is one to read. Now, I'm not saying that because my paintings are in there. Whatever Bible you read, that's the one God gave you, and that's where you get your wisdom. That's where you get the truth. You know, the Bible is God's Word to us. And and I've, I've often talked with people, I said, how are you going to know what God said if you don't read His book? You know, I, I know a lot of you are saying, I think. Well, you don't need to. You don't need to only only go to your own resources. Go to God's Word. If you want to know what He thinks, you'll find it there. And I'm only trying to point with every painting I have in there. I'm only trying to point 
to the Savior. I don't want them to go, hey, great paintings. No, I want them to see Jesus in those paintings. And I've already had so many people write me and say, I opened up that Bible and I cried. And that's the point. Many years ago, God said to me, when you do your paintings, I want to make people weep. And I, I first said, oh, Lord, I don't want people to weep at my paintings. But you know what? He was right. I was wrong. And that's what I want. I want them to open their hearts to the Word of God. And if my paintings can help enable that, that's my goal. Ron, in your paintings, how do you imagine what Jesus looked like physically? Uh, yeah, great question. Great question. Um, I've learned a long time ago that the essence of what I'm trying to say is not in the details like his hair color or, you know, that he have a full beard or just a slight beard. Was he tall? Was he short? Those things, to me, um, are not important, meaning there's no way to know those things. But if you could get the essence, if you could see Jesus healing the leper <coughs> and say, that's me, and go to Christ for that healing you need, and like the leper, you will find Jesus will come and he will heal you. If you could take away that from my painting, that's what I'm looking for. I've got a painting in there where it's a little boy with the five loaves and two fish. Uh, him and his sister are standing before a very um, Middle Eastern town, and they're holding out their gift to Jesus, whose hand is coming out of the foreground of the painting to receive it. And many people say, well, what are you trying to say with that? I'm trying to say that all God wants from you is whatever you have. He's not saying to you, hey, you've got to be a rocket scientist. If that were the case, boy, there'd be few Christians. But he's saying, whatever I've given you, I want you to turn around and use that for my kingdom. So there are messages in each, each of the painting, paintings that I'm hoping people will latch onto and not say, hey, I don't, do the angels have wings? Well, the Bible says they do. But on the other hand, there's some people say, well, we don't like to show them with wings. And I don't think that's the crux of the painting. The crux of the painting is, does God send helpers? And messengers. No, we're not supposed to uh, pray to angels, but he does send messengers to help us. And uh, so if you could get that out of what I've painted, then you're on the right track. Ron, I want to go to Philippians chapter 4. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the in the middle of chapter 4, let's start with verse 6 and go through verse 9 and see how this sounds. Mm-hmm. Don't be pulled in different directions or worried about a thing. Be saturated in prayer throughout each day, offering your faith-filled requests before God with overflowing gratitude. Tell him every detail of your life. Then God's wonderful peace that transcends human understanding will guard your heart and mind through Jesus Christ. Keep your thoughts continually fixed on all that is authentic and real, honorable and admirable, beautiful and respectful, pure and holy, mm-hmm. merciful and kind, and fasten your thoughts on every glorious work of God, praising him always. Put into practice the example of all that you have heard from me mm-hmm. or seen in my life, and the God of peace will be with you in all things. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. 
Well, let me ask you this. Uh, this is a question I've asked so many people, and I ask it of myself. They, we are so concerned about crime, abortion, homosexuality, uh, and, and robberies and killings and all the things that are going on in the world today. People want to know, how could we stop all that if everybody within the sound of our voice, Pat, would go to God's Word and say, I'm going to live the way you say to live. Would we have crimes? Nope. Would we have abortions? Nope. Would we have homosexuality? No. And we go down the line is that if we believe God's Word and practice what He told us, all those things would leave. All those things would go. So if anybody's interested in finding out how those things could be gone, go to your Bible. When you're, when you're saying, hey, somebody wronged me, how do I respond? Well, go to the Word. That'll tell you. And so there's no other book in my life that holds the importance that the Bible does. It is absolutely the Word from God. And all I can tell you is that's how I'm going to live and I'm trying my best to do everything within my power to point to Jesus so that people who are lost don't know where to go. And God forbid you go out of this life without knowing Christ as your Savior. be the worst thing you could possibly do. So I'm just using whatever gifts I've been given to point people to Jesus. Well, Ron, your artistic gifts are superb, and uh, that becomes evident as you uh, work your way through uh, this uh, translation. It's the Passion Translation, uh, the New Testament with Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Songs. Interestingly enough, I've I've seen New Testaments with Psalms and Proverbs, but never uh, with <laughs> with the Song of Solomon. Yeah. Uh, so that got that got we got a little romance tucked in here. You betcha. It's fascinating. Now, Ron, Ron DeCiani is my guest, the illustrator of the Passion Translation. Um, let me go to um, uh, my life verse. Revelation 3, 20. Mm. Behold, I'm standing at the door knocking. Yes, yes. If your heart is open to hear my voice and you open the door within, I will come into you and feast with you. And you will feast with me. Mm. Now, now let's go to the study note because you know every page has these study notes. The Aramaic can be translated. I've been standing at the door knocking. Mm. Jesus knocking on the door points us to the process of an ancient Jewish wedding invitation. In the days of Jesus, a bridegroom and his father would come to the door of the bride to be carrying the betrothal cup of wine and the bride price. Standing outside, they would knock. If she fully opened the door, she was saying, Yes, I will be your bride. Jesus and his Father, in the same way, are knocking on the doors of our hearts, inviting us to be the bride of Christ. So, fascinating, isn't it? I'm so- Well, isn't it incredible that even after we've lived lives that we've lived, and some of us not so great. Jesus is still knocking at our doors. He's still saying, I'm not here because you, you asked me to be. I'm here because I love you. And I want you to be one of God's children. 
isn't that incredible? You would think after all these years, God would say, hey, look, well, they're not interested. I'm just going to, you know, pass them by, but he doesn't. Ron DeCiani is our guest. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We'll be back next weekend for more here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Stay tuned all day long to these uh, signals, and boy, you'll be better for it. Uh, Pat Williams here saying so long. We'll see you next weekend, and have a wonderful week ahead. God bless. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And speaking of books, uh, my latest book is out. It's called Revolutionary Leadership. And we go back to the Revolutionary War period, and we study 25 different leaders, men and women, some famous, some not so famous, but they all played a key role in the the Revolutionary War, uh, that dramatic period when this country came into being. I think you'll enjoy it. Revolutionary leadership. Uh, we are back next weekend for more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you then. Have a terrific week ahead. And stay tuned to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.